working our way through the Sermon on the Mount over the summer in a series called A City on a Hill. And uh, today, we're going to be talking about the subject of worry, because it's one of the things that Jesus talked about in his sermon. And uh, I want to start with the question, what do people worry about? Well, the answer to this question is somewhat dependent upon how old you are and where you live. But for most people, there are six primary areas of worry. So we're going to take them in reverse order. Number six is worry about the past. People worry about past mistakes, omissions, and failures. Worry driven by regret often becomes more prominent as we age as we become increasingly aware of the negative consequences of past choices and the diminishing opportunity to address them. The number five worry is what others think. This worry affects all age groups, but it's particularly present among youth. One British study found that 50% of girls aged 9 to 15 felt pressure to look as flawless as Hollywood celebrities. 33% indicated their appearance was more important than anything else. And 25% of the girls believed that good looks would get them further in life than doing well on exams. I'm sure their parents weren't uh, too thrilled about that, to learn that. The number four worry is relationships. An Australian study found that 50% of both men and women in that country worry about their relationships. Those not in a relationship worry about finding a partner or spouse. Those in a relationship worry about the security of that relationship. Relational worries with children, parents, bosses, co-workers, and friends also lead to sleepless nights for many people. The number three worry is health. While this worry can affect individuals of all ages, it is particularly acute among seniors. Because of the stresses of health problems, losses, and other major life changes, anxiety and worries faced by seniors can become more pronounced than when they were younger. The number two worry is financial stress. Money is a tough one because we all need it to live. Financial stress and worry is common to all age groups and locales. A British study found young adults in London worry worry more about finances than they do love or romance. Many people worry about excessive debt loads, next month's rent or mortgage payment, insufficient funds for their or their children's educational needs, or their partner's spending habits. Financial pressures can be relentless and can lead to sleepless nights, divorces, suicide, and family breakups. Well, the number one worry for most people, can you guess? Work. Many people worry about finding or keeping a job. A Harvard Institute poll found many young Americans between the ages of 18 and 29 worry if they will be able to find a job once they're out of college. If they have a job, they worry that they will lose it. Others worry about about, uh, being in a job they hate. Some worry they're inadequate for their job, yet others face the challenge of an unreasonable, belligerent boss or undependable, dishonest employees at work. Well, there's no shortage of things to worry about. Some worries we all share as a part of being human. Other worries are unique to our age 
our geographic area or our life circumstances. But one thing is certain, anxiety, stress, and worry all take a toll on our overall well-being. Jesus addressed the topic of worry in the Sermon on the Mount. And what did he have to say about worry? He said, don't worry about your life. Well, was Jesus singing a first century version of the carefree lifestyle espoused in the well-known song, Akuna Matata? Was he anticipating the call to ignore the problems of life in, don't, don't worry, be happy? Let's find out. Please stand right now and join me as we read aloud Jesus' teaching about worry to his disciples on the mountainside and to his disciples today, you and me. I'll read the parts that say worship leader and you join me on the parts that say all. Here we go. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, two weeks ago, when we studied the preceding paragraph in Matthew chapter 6, we heard Jesus' warning against the idolatry of materialism. Jesus said, no one can serve God and money. We can't pursue kingdom values if we're pursuing the worldly value of materialism. In the passage we're examining today, Jesus warns against another form of idolatry, the idolatry of worry. In fact, Jesus starts with the word, therefore. Thinking disciples always ask what the therefore is there for. Some of you caught that. When we connect the two paragraphs with the therefore, it becomes apparent that Jesus is saying that because we can't serve God and materialism, we shouldn't worry about our lives. Why? The clear implication is that just like materialism, worry will keep us from serving God with a whole heart. Worry leads us to trust in something else other than God. It leads us to trust in ourselves, in our own efforts to provide for our needs, to maintain control. 
Well, before we look at Jesus, uh, Jesus teaching more in depth, it's important to answer a question. And the question is this, is worry always wrong? Is worry always wrong? To answer this question, we need to take a quick look at the word Jesus uses when he says, don't worry. It's the Greek word, meramnao. It has different meanings. Sometimes, meramnao expresses an appropriate feeling of intense concern and care for something such as the Lord's work. We see that in 1 Corinthians 7.32. Or someone's welfare. We see that in Philippians 2.20. In this case, we can render this word in English as concern. Concern is appropriate when it's directed toward right things, kept within bounds, and causes us to do our proper duty. However, meramnao also expresses intense feelings of anxiety about issues of life, such as what to say when arrested for preaching the gospel, about many less important things, or about the pressing daily matters of life. Paul uses this meaning when he says, don't be anxious, don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Worry is inappropriate or even sinful when it's misdirected, when it's in wrong proportion, or when it indicates a lack of trust in God. And it's this latter sense that Jesus addresses here in this passage. Jesus uses the word worry six times in this passage. And in his teaching, he gives us three reasons not to worry, the way to experience God's provision for life's necessities, and a strategy to eliminate worry. Well, what reasons does Jesus give why we shouldn't worry? First, Jesus' disciples shouldn't worry because of God's care for his creatures. In support of this reason, Jesus cites God's provision for the birds. Even though birds don't sow or reap like, a, like farmers do, still God provides for their needs. Now, birds do have to work for their food. They expend energy in building nests and collecting food for themselves and their young. Yet, it's actually God who feeds and clothes them. Jesus is saying that when we are responsible to work as God has ordained, he will faithfully supply the necessities of life for us, just as he does for the birds. Jesus goes on. He uses two rhetorical questions to drive home his point about God's care. Following the practice of Jewish rabbis, he uses a rhetorical device by arguing from the lesser to the greater. He asked, are you not much more valuable than the birds? Well, the obvious answer is yes, of course. The clear implication is that if God provides the basic necessities of life for the birds, he will certainly do the same for humans, the crown and rulers of his creation. Well, in his second question, Jesus asks, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Well, again, the obvious answer is a resounding no. The cybernetic Borg in the sci-fi series Star Trek were famously known for the mantra, resistance is futile, you will be assimilated. Jesus is saying something similar, yet distinctly different. Jesus is saying, worry is futile, 
you will be cared for. Jesus asserts that his disciples shouldn't worry because of God's care for his creatures, and second, because of God's provision in nature. Jesus first mentions the flowers. Did you know that even today, regal red and purple anemones and stunning blue irises, I've I've seen some of them in pictures, grow wild on the hillsides above the Sea of Galilee. I can just see Jesus. He points to, to some of those flowers and says, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon, in all his splendor, wasn't dressed like one of these. The words labor, referring to toiling in the field and spinning, sewing clothing at home, likely refer respectively to the characteristic occupations of men and women in ancient rural culture. These were the ways people made a living to meet their basic needs. Jesus points out the flowers don't do any of that. Yet, God clothes them with more splendor than King Solomon, whose court people came from all over the known world to behold. Jesus then mentions the grass of the field. Green spring grass was cut, dried, and bundled as a natural source of fuel for fire ovens in biblical times. Grass was also a common biblical metaphor for dramatic changes of fortune and for human frailty and transience. Jesus says if God's sustaining care extends to such a transitory part of creation, will he not much more clothe you? Again, the obvious answer is yes. Well, if we grant the obvious logic of Jesus' argument, then worry can only result from a lack of genuine belief in God's goodness and mercy. Let me say that again. If we grant the obvious logic of Jesus' argument, then worry can only result from a lack of genuine belief in God's goodness and mercy. In fact, Bible scholar Robert Mount says that Worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. Our God is a loving and caring Father who merits our trust. Well, Jesus says that we shouldn't worry because of God's care for his creatures and because of his provision in nature. He also directs that we shouldn't worry because worry is the practice of unbelievers who don't understand God's care. Jesus says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. By the way, the word pagans usually refers to Gentiles, but in this context, it specifically refers to anyone who operates outside of God's value system. This past week, while I was preparing my sermon, I came across a how to get ahead website. The advice espoused there included kissing up to your boss, not being too selfless, and ensuring your hard work gets noticed. The advice followed the mantra, look out for number one, no one else will. Jesus says, don't live like that. Don't live out those worldly values. You don't need to do that to see your needs met. Why? Because your heavenly father already knows what you need. Jesus' clear implication is that God is a good father who cares about and who will supply 
our needs. Well, after giving his disciples three reasons why they shouldn't worry, Jesus shares the way to experience God's provision of life's necessities. He says we will be given food, drink, and clothes if we what? If we... Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God. Verse 33 contains the culmination of Jesus' reasoning in the paragraph that we're studying today. This climactic imperative to seek first God's kingdom is to guide every aspect of a disciple's life. The word seek here doesn't mean to look for something that's not present. Jesus had already announced the arrival of of the kingdom. It means that Jesus' disciples, you and I, are to make the kingdom of heaven and its values the center of our daily priorities. This admonition takes us back to the key verse of the sermon in chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus said, we've we've talked about it a lot, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We are to become like God, a city on a hill that rightly reflects him to to the world. How? By choosing kingdom priorities, by practicing acts of righteousness, by living out kingdom values moment by moment. Let me ask you a question. Does God really provide daily necessities when we seek first his kingdom? Does that really happen? Well, God fed Elijah after he faithfully delivered a hard, a hard message to the wicked king Ahab. How? God delivered bread and meat twice a day in the mouths of ravens. Now, while that may not sound overly appealing by modern hygienic standards, this provision of daily needs kept Elijah alive. God provided for the widow at Zarephath and her son after she chose to trust God by giving her last bit of food to feed the prophet Elijah. How? God supplied her daily needs. He kept the jars of flour and oil from going empty. God provided for the crowds on the mountainside who were choosing kingdom priorities. As they listened to Jesus, God provided plentiful food through a miraculous transformation of What? Two fish and five loaves. How? Through a young lad who practiced kingdom priorities. He generously gave what he had to bless others. In 19th century England, God provided for more than 10,000 orphans under the care of George Mueller, who for more than 62 years repeatedly experienced God's provision of food and supplies without even once soliciting financial support. Mueller followed Jesus' teaching of providing for the poor and saw God answer prayers daily for his and the children's daily needs in ways that defy human explanation. Something we can easily forget is that one of the ways God supplies needs is through us, Jesus' disciples, the church. Most of us here in North America have way more than our needs met. Compared to the rest of the world, we really have the resources of kings. What do we do with those resources? 
Jesus said, to whom much has been given, much will be required. Do we hoard them? Do we hold on to them tightly, worry that we might not have enough for retirement? Or like the early church, do we freely and joyfully share with others, both inside and outside the church, who face financial hardship? Let me ask you something else. When was the last time that you made a sacrificial gift to someone else within this body of believers who you knew was struggling financially? Let me ask you another question. When was the last time you made a sacrificial gift to someone outside our congregation who was in need of financial help? Kingdom values call us to freely and generously share with others the blessings God has poured out on our lives. When we choose to respond in generosity to real needs around us, others see a true and winsome demonstration of God's love and care for them. We become a city on a hill that reflects the goodness of God for all to see and know. We also keep materialism and worry from gaining footholds in our lives. Well, Jesus not only gives us three reasons not to worry and a method for experiencing God's provision of daily necessities, seeking first his kingdom, he also cites a way to eliminate or at least to minimize worry from our lives. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus' recommended strategy for avoiding worry is to take one day at a time. One day at a time, sweet Jesus. That's what Jesus was talking about right here. If God's ordering of a disciple's life includes God's provision for all of the disciples' daily needs, a disciple certainly shouldn't worry about tomorrow. By the way, the two phrases, for tomorrow will worry about itself and each day has enough trouble of its own, they reiterate the same basic truth. All the worry in the world today can do nothing about the cares and problems of tomorrow. As we learn to let God care for us today, we become increasingly secure in his care of us for tomorrow, regardless of whatever evil or trials may lie ahead. Well, how do we eliminate worry from our lives? Jesus says we choose to focus on living for him today. We remember that God is a loving father who knows our needs and promises to meet our needs as we live out kingdom priorities. By the way, this is important. If worry seems like it's spinning out of control in your life, you should always seek help from two people besides your heavenly father. One is your physician. Sometimes excessive worry can indicate depression and anxiety disorder or or other clinical maladies that require and that will respond to medical intervention. The other person is one of your pastors. Sometimes worry can have spiritual roots and these need to be further explored and more specialized prayer ministry received. Well, In addition to taking one day at a time, are there some other practices we can engage in to defeat worry? Yes, there are. And I want to quickly mention three of them, and then I want to give you some assignments for this week. You didn't know you might get homework at church, did you? Well, we're going to have some today, you and me both. 
how, uh, how, how, can we, how can we defeat worry? Well, here's the first thing I want to mention to you. We can avoid anxiousness and worry by intentionally giving them, by giving our worries to God. Some of you are saying, well, Kent, how do I do that? How do I give my worry to God? It's pretty simple. You talk to him. We call that prayer. And you tell him what you're anxious about. Then you tell him you're choosing to give that worry to him. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety upon him, upon God, because he cares for you. Paul says in Philippians 4, 7, that when we give our worries to God in prayer, the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Giving our worries to God is often the most effective when we share them with another believer and allow them to pray with us and for us. One place this can happen is in a small group. Small groups have so many benefits. One of those benefits is that they're a place we can be real with God and with one another and where we can pray for each other. If you're not in a small group, I want to encourage you to seek one out and to join one this fall. But you don't have to wait for the fall. Every Sunday after our worship services, we have an opportunity for you to bring your worries to God in prayer here at the front. Our prayer team members will be here today after the service to do just that. The second thing we can do to avoid worry about the future is to be generous givers. We've already touched on this a little bit, but um, it's important that we don't hoard the resources that God has given us. You say, Kent, are you kidding Won't being generous just create more financial stress? No, it will do just the opposite. Every time you and I give generously, we are declaring our trust in God and in his ability to provide. We need to be generous in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Malachi 3.10 says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, God says, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. God promises more blessings than we have room for if we demonstrate our trust in him through obedient giving. We also need to be generous toward others, both inside and outside the body of Christ who are facing financial stress. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 tells us that God loves cheerful or hilarious givers. Generous giving generates joy in us and in the recipient. Okay, I've got an assignment for you related to being generous. I'm asking that all of us, you and me, Ask God to bring someone to mind, either inside or outside the church, that we can generously bless this week with some type of gift. It very well may be a financial gift. It might be a gift of appreciation, like a a card. It might be a gift of service for some need in their life. Ask God to show you whom he wants you to bless and how, and watch your worry quotient drop substantially and your joy quotient skyrocket this week. By the way, while it's not wrong to give a monetary gift directly to someone else, Jesus encouraged us to give anonymously. Finding a friend to deliver the gift anonymously keeps the receiving party from feeling beholden in any way, and it also helps us ensure we're giving to please God rather than to look good to others. 
The third thing we can do practically to uh, eliminate worry is to give our, in addition to giving our worries to God and being generous givers, is to choose to give thanks to God for his provisions, both present and past. Thanksgiving resets our focus upon God like nothing else. Did you know it's impossible to give thanks and to worry at the same time? When we express thanks, we are acknowledging God's goodness and declaring our trust in his care for us. So here's your second assignment. The first one was to give generously in some way to someone else this week. The second assignment is this. Every evening this week, before you close your eyes to go to sleep, you're lying there in the bed, take a moment to thank God for one blessing in your life. If you get on a roll and you do two or three or more, that's, that, that's great. That's even better. Did you know the temptation to worry is often the strongest at night? Thanksgiving will be like a preventative medicine against worry that keeps your heart focused on God's goodness and faithfulness. No, when Jesus said, don't worry, he wasn't attempting to scoop Hakuna Matata and teach a problem-free philosophy of life. He was also not, at, not espousing the call to ignore life's challenges and paste on a plastic smile as his champion in, don't worry, be happy. Jesus was and is calling his followers to live with a different set of priorities Priorities that pursue kingdom values and lead to kingdom living. Priorities that resist anything in this world, including materialism and or worry, that supplant God as master and provider. Priorities that make us a city on a hill that gloriously reflects the care and faithfulness of our heavenly father. Remember, Worry is futile. You will be cared for. Let's pray.